On Full Service Radio, 830 WCRN. To join the conversation, call 508-871-7000. Now, here's your host, Mark Altman. Welcome to I Communicate. I'm your host, Mark Altman. Happy to hear, be here with you. And uh, today, we're going to be talking about assertiveness related to boundaries, related to time management. And so let me just open up by saying that when people come to me and tell me they have a time management problem, which is the majority of the world, it's just not an easy question, right? Because time management is a big bucket, right? Time management involves so many things. It involves organization and structure and how you manage your tasks, your priorities. It involves being aligned on priorities to making sure what you think you're supposed to do aligns with what your boss wants you to do. It talks about prioritization, planning. It could, it could be involved with procrastination. And there are so many different aspects and facets to time management. However, the more I work with companies on core competencies, the more I'm realizing that the number one contributor to poor time management is boundaries and having poor boundaries. And it ties into assertiveness because... You know, you see all these seminars out there of people saying, learn how to say no and come to this two-hour training on how to say no. And see, to me, that's not the real problem. The real problem is why people don't say no, right? And to me, here's, here's what I see and hear are the reasons why people don't say no. First, it's because they don't want to let people down. You know, as a leader... If you feel like you have a responsibility to be a support system invisible to your team, it may feel bad for you to say no. It may not feel comfortable for you to say no because you don't want to let those people down. Another reason people don't like to say no is because they want to be seen as team players. And so in their own mind, saying no means you're not being a team player. An example I often give is if you are working at night at the end of the workday at seven, eight, nine o'clock at night as an extension to your workday. Has anybody asked you to do that? Or are you doing that on your own? And are you doing that because of your perceived pressure and need to be a team player? Are you doing that because if everybody else on the team is working at seven, eight, nine, and that's our team culture, I don't want to be the odd person out and not do that. That's a lot of pressure. So even if your boss isn't asking you to work 7, 8, or 9 at night, you may feel the pressure and obligation to do so because other people on your team do that. Other people in other departments in your company do that. It could be a team culture issue. It could be a company culture issue. So that's a second reason why people struggle to be assertive and set boundaries. And the third reason is because they don't know how. Like, what is it? What's involved? If someone raises their hand and says, okay, I'll set boundaries, what does that look like? Well, we're going to talk about that on the show today, but there's some strategies and tools to how to set effective boundaries. And so not knowing how to do that or feel confident you can do it are also factors in why people struggle to be assertive. So on the show today, we're going to talk about setting boundaries. 
We're going to talk about managing boundaries, and we're going to talk about what it looks like when people cross boundaries. And I start out with the crossing boundaries because a lot of times there's a blind spot associated with crossing boundaries. And a lot of the times for ideas for the show, I get these ideas based on coaching conversations I have with people because people are bringing me challenges, communication challenges, leadership challenges, sales challenges, personal challenges. Throughout the day, every day, people are bringing me different situations. And this one person brought me this scenario and I thought, wow, what a really good and difficult problem to solve. And so the scenario she brings me is one of my employees is not doing a good enough job boundary setting. So before I go into this, okay, there's two critical things that I teach leaders to think about when a problem appears. And the first thing is the perceived problem versus the real problem. So in her mind, when she brought this problem to me, the perceived problem is that this employee doesn't have good boundaries when dealing with other leaders in the organization. That was the perceived problem. And so I try to get people to look deeper to understand what the real problem is. So as we talked through the conversation, she started to recognize that the real problem is that she lacks the awareness to know when she's crossing boundaries. Another real problem is that this person's very young and may not have the experience to know what crossing boundaries is. Third, the real problem may be she may not really understand the impact of if she didn't have the blind spot and she did understand what it looks like to cross boundaries, she may not understand what the impact of doing that is for herself, for her team, for the organization. And the irony and what made this example so great is because the person that this employee is crossing boundaries with is playing along. And just to get more specific, what, what this person is doing is they're acting overly friendly, very informal when they're interacting with this other leader in the organization. And the other leader does the same back. So the other leader is not modeling good behavior, and it's unlikely that that leader even realizes that. But they're conversing with each other in an office setting where lots of other administrators and executives are witnessing these interactions. So when you tell someone they're crossing a boundary, their reaction, and, and, and my client even said to me that this person's going to say, well, the other person doesn't mind. The other person doesn't see it as a problem. So that can be challenging, right? Because that can be a pushback, you know, and an excuse to make if you pose the question that you're crossing boundaries. So, first thing is, we have to understand what the real problem is as opposed to the perceived problem, okay? And so like I said, the perceived problem is they're crossing boundaries, the real problem is all the reasons, right, that could be contributing to the perceived problem, okay? Now, what's interesting about this is, I recently did a show where I spoke a little bit about value judgments. So 
What's interesting about crossing boundaries is that one person's opinion of what crosses a boundary or crosses a line may be different than another person. And the, in the example I gave this client was, if I walked up to this person and walked into their office and just walked up and gave them a hug, they might have not minded that. Or they might have been like, well, why are you hugging me? And given me some kind of look or response to know that I crossed a line or a boundary. And so crossing boundaries, when you think about it, how do we actually even know when we've crossed a boundary? Because if we have different definitions to define what crossing a boundary would be, you typically don't realize you've crossed a boundary until you get some kind of verbal or nonverbal feedback to let you know that you have. So the real problem here, to me, is to help this employee develop the self-awareness to recognize before to not cross a boundary. In other words, what are the behaviors that she needs to be aware of to know to not cross a boundary? And I've said this before on the show. I say this in coaching and training all the time. Habit change begins with self-awareness. It begins with catching yourself in the act. And when you catch yourself in the act, you can catch yourself in the act before, during, or after. So if your conversation and communication is very informal, joking, perceived as unprofessional, you can realize that after you do it, based on the feedback you receive or because you become mindful of it, you can realize while you're doing it and shift gears in the process, or it can be on top of mind and you can be mindful before you would be tempted to do it. And that's the three levels of self-awareness before, during, or after. They're all good in varying degrees, but when I say self-awareness, that's what I'm talking about. And the other thing is... When you're having a conversation with anybody about a habit or behavior change, you have to understand if they're motivated to do it differently. Because like I said before, if the other person says, this is no big deal, the other person does it right back to me, and their immediate response is to make an excuse or justification, then you do maybe need to wonder whether they're motivated to do it differently if they're trying to justify the behavior in the first place. So... What's interesting about this is you've got to get to the real problem, which is the self-awareness and the knowledge to even know what you're doing and what's inappropriate. And this person happens to be pretty young, and it happens to be their first professional job, so I don't think there's any maliciousness here. I don't think there's any intention to be unprofessional or cross a boundary. I think it's a lack of experience and knowledge. And that's okay. And I talk all the time with leaders about being judgmental. So think about, you have a conversation with someone about crossing boundaries, and they say, okay, I'll work on it. And then they do it again. And now you're frustrated and feel like they don't respect me or they don't care. But it may be that when you talk to them about crossing boundaries in the first place, you didn't tackle the real problem, which was, what is she actually doing to cross boundaries? What does that look like? How would she... begin the behavior to remember to not do it and be mindful to not do it. 
there's lots of questions that need to be asked when someone's changing a habit or behavior. And there's a good chance a second or third conversation's taking place because you didn't get to the real problem. And then the second thing is you didn't get to the root cause of the problem. And the root cause could be knowledge, inexperience, not understanding what behaviors the person's doing that actually indicates that they're crossing a boundary, right? Those are examples of the root cause. And so what's the real problem and what's the root cause of the real problem? The real problem is that the person isn't self-aware of the fact that they're crossing boundaries. The root cause of that problem is their lack of experience, knowledge around what that would look like. So those are critical, all right? Now, we talked about, you know, how do you know when someone's crossing a boundary? And when we come back after our first break, I'm going to share with you how to identify when's crossing a boundary and how to have the conversation with someone who is crossing a boundary. So for Mark Altman, this is I Communicate. We'll be right back. Now, I Communicate continues on Full Service Radio, 830 WCRN. Once again, here's your host, Mark Altman. Welcome back to I Communicate. I'm your host, Mark Altman. We're talking about setting boundaries, managing boundaries, and right now we're focusing on knowing what it's like to cross a boundary, and more importantly, not just knowing what it's like, but how to have a conversation around crossing boundaries and around habit change and performance improvement. So look, there's four different ways you can cross a boundary, right? One of them is your body language. And it could be a look, it could be a glare, it could be something that essentially makes someone feel uncomfortable, right? That's the rule of thumb. If you're doing something that makes someone else uncomfortable, then you've crossed a boundary. And I can't say this enough, because I hear this a lot in my, in my teachings. You know, perception's reality. You may have given that same look to five other people that thought it was funny or cute or not, but if the person on the receiving end of that look is made to feel uncomfortable, then you've crossed a boundary. And, you know, everybody's different. Everybody has different values and expectations and thoughts and emotions and feelings. And so we need to respect that. So that's body language. The second one is the example I gave in the last segment about physical touch, right? So the running joke here is that I teach love languages. And for those of you who aren't familiar with love languages, there are five love languages, okay? It is physical touch, words of affirmation, gifts, acts of service, and quality time. And the idea behind love languages is they speak to the fact that instead of do unto others as you'd have done to you, it speaks to the opposite. It says each one of us likes to be recognized, appreciated, and valued in a different way. And when you lead and motivate people, you don't use one size fits all. So love languages for a long time were just in your personal life. So it was like husband and wife, or it doesn't have to be heterosexual, but life partners, whatever. But it's life partners, you know? And think about it, it applies to your kids also, right? Because each of your kids likes to be recognized, appreciated, valued, and motivated differently as well. So love languages were a way to know how to treat people the way they want to be treated. And in the workplace, they matter also. 
because everybody likes to be recognized, appreciated, valued in a different way. The example I always give is salespeople. We always assume that salespeople are only motivated by money and bonuses and incentives and president's club trips and things like that. And guess what? Most salespeople, that is their primary motivator. But to just blanket assume that that's the only thing that motivates salespeople, to me, doesn't make any sense. So when I talk about physical touch as crossing a line, the thing about physical touch is, you know, it's always like there's no physical touch in the workplace, ha ha. But the reality is physical touch doesn't mean have to be like an inappropriate sexual gesture. Physical touch could be putting your arm around someone um, that doesn't want you to put their arm around them. Physical touch could be touching their arm in a one-on-one conversation and your, your um, intention is not to be crossing a boundary. It's just who you are. There's a lot of people in the world who are very touchy-feely. I'm a person that loves hugs. I, I love intimacy with people I care about and trust and respect. But other people may not be touchy-feely. And if I give them a hug, that might make them feel uncomfortable. So we have to remember when it comes to crossing boundaries, we can't just go to the word intention. Because if your intention is not to offend, your intention is not to cross a boundary, it doesn't mean you still may not cross a boundary. And you don't get to fall back on and go, oh, well, that's just who I am. I didn't mean to do that. You don't get to just say that. You know, you have to respect other people's space and boundaries to know that. So intentionality is not an excuse. There's plenty of times in life people do things because they're forgetful or they do them by accident, or it wasn't their intention to harm, but it doesn't get them a get-out-of-jail-free card, right? If you did something to wrong me or harm me, and I ask you about it, and I'm curious as to know why you did that, and your initial response is, well, I didn't do it on purpose, that doesn't make me feel better. Because even though you wronged me or disappointed you, or disappointed me, I'm not upset with you because I felt like you did it on purpose, I'm upset with you because you had a lack of awareness around doing it in the first place and understanding the impact your behavior might have. Okay, so that, that's, that's a critical piece here. All right, so that's physical touch. We talk about the words you use, informal versus formal. So the thing about informal versus formal, sometimes relationships get very comfortable in the workplace and I'll always remember um, a line my uh, high school accounting teacher, Joe Bevilacqua, said, may you rest in peace. Love that guy. Um, he always used to use the expression, don't confuse kindness with weakness. And I think when we talk about formal conversation or informal conversation in the workplace, you know, it's like we may like each other, we may respect each other, we may enjoy collaborating and communicating in each other's company. But that doesn't necessarily mean our style of communication should necessarily change because you're still my boss and I still work for you. So is there an etiquette? Is there a culture that has been established that both sides need to respect? And by the way, in some cases, the expectations aren't clear. And in some cases, the etiquette hasn't been established. And, you know, for all the work I do in helping people with communication, you know, one of the huge challenges with communication is what I call communication ambiguity. 
And that's when there are unclear expectations, unclear rules of engagement. So when boundaries get crossed, you know, there, there wasn't necessarily a template to follow. And that's an opportunity to create that template and set that culture and, you know, determine those rules of engagement. But that can be a problem. And by the way, before I go on to the fourth one, I just have to tell a brief story of Mr. Bevilacqua because this was one of my favorite moments in all of high school. And I swear to listeners, this is a true story. So this guy had a great sense of humor. He was very sarcastic. And he used to call me to get under my skin, but not in a a mean way. But he used to call me, instead of Alt-Man, my last name, he used to call me Alt-Boy. Okay? So this guy would call me Alt-Boy on a regular basis. And once a week, he would come over to my desk during class and knock my books on the floor. And he thought it was really funny. So I really did like this guy. And I loved his sense of humor. So one day, he, he knocked my books on the floor. And I said to him, I said, the next time you knock my books on the floor, I'm going to knock the stuff off your desk. And he goes, okay, I dare you to try it. So he knocked my books on the floor, and I swear to you, I went and knocked all the stuff off his desk. And I got to tell you, he might have been angry, but he couldn't do a thing, right? Because he was doing the same thing to me, and I don't even think he knew what to do, because I don't think he thought I would actually do it. But... When it was all said and done, he laughed. We had a good laugh about it. And the irony is, I think I earned some respect that day. And he still called me alt boy, but he didn't knock my books off the desk anymore. So, you know, I teach people a lot about assertive behavior, and I'm not proposing that if high school kids, you should go knock the books off your teacher's desk. But it was just an interesting story. And sometimes when you advocate for yourself, and sometimes when you speak up and you're assertive, and, and are able to articulate what you want and need, it gains respect. And I think a lot of times people make a determination when they're debating whether or not to advocate for themselves. I think when, they, when they're assessing what's the best and worst thing that could happen, they default to the worst much heavier than the best. And what if the person gets angry? And what if the person holds a grudge? And what if the person defends their behavior? And what if the person doesn't change and it was a waste of time to talk to them in the first place? Well, all those things are theoretically true. And what if the person actually respects me more for speaking up? Because even if they don't agree with me, even if they don't change their behavior, they may respect me more for it. And again, that can be a cultural thing in your family, in the workplace, on your team. The one thing I'm going to say is that the likelihood, if you speak up assertively with the right words, the right tone, in the right body language, that someone's angry at you for it, you use respectful and compassionate language and body language, it's unlikely. Not impossible, but really unlikely. So speaking up and advocating for what you want and need, there's a responsibility that goes with that. And that's what you say, how you say it, and the body language that goes with it. And if those things are left out, then that's where the assertive conversation may not be recognized, appreciated, and valued. So sometimes when people speak up for what they want and need, they forget that. So if it doesn't go the way they want, they might have had a role in that in how they communicated their information. 
I talk a lot about in communication the difference between a complaint and a share. So if you're wanting to advocate for yourself and you don't feel like you're being treated respectfully, you don't feel like you're earning enough money, you don't feel like you're getting the opportunity you deserve at your job, you can complain about it or you can educate and um, influence the people you're talking to on why you feel like you should get those opportunities. So when you're educating and influencing and sharing, that's very different than complaining. And what makes it different in most cases, and this brings us to our fourth way to know you've crossed a boundary, is your tone. Because a complaint is a very specific tone. Sharing and educating is a different tone. So I know when crossing boundaries, a lot of people use sarcasm, you know, as a way to communicate. They make jokes at other people's expense. That can be crossing a boundary and crossing a line. And so, again, what may be funny and acceptable to jab and make fun of other people and be sarcastic may not be comfortable for them. And, you know, we've seen this time and again when people use sarcasm with humor, you know, and then someone dares be sensitive or get defensive with it. We get that, oh, it's just a joke. Come on, take a joke. And so when you, when you respond with, come on, let's take a joke, that it implies that the other person is wrong for being offended by your sarcasm and your boundary crossing, as opposed to, wow, I didn't realize that upset you or offended you. You know, that's an opportunity when someone shows sensitivity or expresses some kind of self-advocacy moment, it's an opportunity for you to be curious to better understand why they perceived it the way they did and how you could act differently next time to be more respectful and supportive of that person. You know, do we have a culture right now that is highly sensitive, more so than ever? Perhaps. I'm not here to argue that. I'm here to say that our job as human beings, as peers and as leaders, is to meet people where they're at, understand we're all different as humans, and look for opportunities to grow and be curious to strengthen those relationships. When we come back for our third segment, I'm going to get into how to have that conversation with a team member. For Mark Altman and I Communicate, we'll be right back. You've been listening to I Communicate with your host, Mark Altman. Join us again each week at this time on Full Service Radio, WCRN. Welcome back to I Communicate. I'm Mark Altman and glad to be here with you. In our first couple of segments, we've been talking about the importance of, of managing boundaries, setting boundaries, and crossing boundaries. And in this last segment, I want to talk about um, how that conversation would go if you have someone that has a blind spot and isn't aware of how their behavior is impacting others. It may be crossing a boundary. It could be how they communicate with someone. It could be that they interrupt in meetings. Um, it could be that when they get offended, the way they communicate their emotions isn't the most productive or effective way in the world. It could be lots of reasons. But when you're trying to get someone to recognize a blind spot and create some awareness for someone about a behavior they may have, how do you start that conversation? And if you start the, if you start the conversation with your observations, that's that's a good way to start as long as 
you can explain the difference between an assertion and assessment. Not explain it. As long as you can discern between the difference of an assertion and an assessment. An assessment is, a, is an opinion. An assertion is a fact. And so here's an example. If you overhear two people talking to one another, and then your takeaway is one person was being rude to the other person, that's an assessment because that's based on your value system. So you have, you have a defined set of behaviors in your mind that you would call talking to someone that way as rude, and you're entitled to that. And frankly, your defined set of behaviors may be pretty consistent with society's rules of rude behaviors, and it doesn't change the fact that it's an opinion, right? Because the way you're assessing someone else's interaction, someone else's behavior is just that. It's an opinion. If you say to someone, uh, Christine isn't an effective leader, okay, that's an assessment. Christine may be a great leader, but you're assessing how you believe Christine should lead based on your value system and the core competencies that would go with being a good leader. An assertion is a fact. An example of an assertion would be if you hear someone yelling at somebody else and you say, wow, Mark was really yelling at that person. Well, that's a fact. Like yelling, we know what yelling is. You're either yelling or you're not. And I suppose if we're going to get really nitpicky, you know, we could get into raising your voice versus yelling, but you get the general point. When you are having a conversation with someone about a habit, about crossing a boundary, about a blind spot or something, a behavior they need to be more aware of, understand that when you start the conversation, it's very important to start it by saying my perception, my observations. You've probably heard at some point in your life the value of I statements versus you statements. What I teach people is the value of I and my statements. My understanding is, my perception is, my observations are. If you say my understanding is that the following happened, it opens up room for dialogue. If you say your observation as a fact when it was really an assessment, not an assertion, you're going to put people on the defensive. They're going to feel blamed, accused, and criticized. And so you're trying to create psychological safety. When you have a conversation with someone and you're an authority figure, you're trying to create a level of psychological safety so they will speak their truth and share. And so by starting the conversation with my statements or I statements, you're allowing room for dialogue and safe dialogue versus you've already made up your mind, you've judged them for how they've acted, it's factual, it's black and white, there's no room for interpretation. Okay, so you have to discern between how I'm going to explain this to people, how I'm going to communicate this. Is it an assertion or an assessment? And going into the conversation, knowing that you've assessed something that's open for interpretation or it's a fact is a critical piece to start out an effective conversation. So that's huge, right? So it starts there. So the thing is, is that I also talk about starting a conversation at a high level. And if you've got someone that's crossing a boundary, and in this case, the boundary is they're being a little too informal 
and sarcastic and humorous with their boss, and, and the boss is okay with it, and they're doing it in front of other people, you know, you can tell the person, this is really not a good idea. Because when you do this, people may think you're unprofessional. When you do this, people may treat you like a kid, especially based on your age. When you do this, you reflect poorly on the team. You can say all those things. You can share all those assessments of the situation. And in your opinion, that may be true. And the challenge with saying all those things is you're using something I often talk about called the writing reflex, which is the writing reflex is you as an authority is pointing out all the problems with someone's behavior. And when people are in authority, throughout our lives, we're constantly being told by people in authority what we're not doing well enough, what we need to do, what we need to do better, and why it's wrong. And that's when, that's what the writing reflex is. It's perpetuating that behavior. So instead of saying to the person, here's all the reasons why you shouldn't do this, why don't you ask the person, why do you think I'm making an issue of this? You know, you mentioned that your boss who's doing this, they don't mind when you do this and you have this banter back and forth. So if that's the case, why do you think I'm bringing this to your attention? Why do you think I'm trying to create some awareness for you on this issue? Right? And so the person may say, I don't know. I don't think it's a big deal. Or even if they don't say, I don't think it's a big deal, they may be thinking of it. Your job as a conversation is to get the person to recognize the errors of their ways on their own. Let them articulate why. So as the leader in that conversation, you could say to the person, well, so when you and your boss interact that way in the department out in front of everybody else, have you thought about how people, others may perceive that behavior and how they may think of you when you do that? So you pose the question, instead of using the writing reflex and telling them that they're crossing a boundary and telling them here's all the reasons you shouldn't do it, ask them. Have you thought about that? The person says, no, I haven't thought about that. So ask them, well, think about it now. So when you have that banter with your boss, with the sarcasm and the jabbing and the informal nature of your communication, how do you think that may come off to other people? And then you hope they would at least say, geez, you know, I, I guess it could be considered unprofessional because if other people in administration on the executive team don't really support or appreciate that, yeah, it could, it could come across as unprofessional. And I suppose it could reflect poorly on our team culture and how people perceive our team as a whole because I'm representing our team. And boy, you know, I guess it could really impact my opportunity to get credibility in the organization because I'm a young person. And if people see me coming off as kind of like a kid or unprofessional, the likelihood that they will recognize me for opportunities for growth, future promotions, raises, recognition could be impacted by that behavior. Now I ask you, if you're listening to the show here, what would be more valuable in this conversation? You using the writing reflex to tell them all the reasons they, don't, they shouldn't be doing what they're doing or they come to the conclusion on their own. 
And they look at you and go, you know, I never thought of that. Yeah, that could be detrimental to how people see me and hear me in the organization. And so, boy, that's, that's what conversations are all about. The great leaders, the people in position of authority, when they talk, it should almost always be asking questions to guide people to new awarenesses, to guide people to why they would be motivated to act differently and behave differently, to guide people to newfound knowledge, to understand what crossing boundaries even is in the workplace if it's your first professional job. It's not about telling people what to do. It's not about telling people why they're bad and why they're wrong. It's about asking questions, leading with empathy, and listening to understand. In making the discussion collaborative to remove the hierarchy of the authority, that's what we should be doing. You know, I had, I did a training this week for a client. And, and I always do evals after the training to get feedback. And one person gave me feedback. She said, you know, I feel like in this training, we talked about a lot of what we talked about in the last training. Felt a little redundant. And so I replied to her. I actually sent her an email. And I said, thank you very much for that feedback. I appreciate you sharing that. And I explained to her that when you're learning something new, Think about, you've already learned a set of behaviors, a set of values, knowledge, what crossing boundaries is, what it isn't, how to communicate with people. We've all got a learned set of habits, behaviors, values, norms. And so when you're learning something new, you now have to unlearn some of those things. So you have to go through the process of unlearning, and then you have to relearn. And what I explained to her is that the whole thing about what makes professional development and training and coaching successful is the continuous learning aspect. Now, I could approach training, and if it was a six-part training, I can fit in six topics, two hours a month for six months, and we can just jam quantity and learn six different core competencies. But to learn, unlearn, and relearn, and practice, and reinforce, it takes time. So... There is overlap because if you're going to change habits, your growth is typically incremental. So if you've got someone crossing boundaries, you know, if you just unilaterally say to someone, stop crossing boundaries, that feels daunting. Like that feels a big ask. If we identify a behavior or two that they can wrap their head around to focus on, that paves the way to eventually ultimately building the skill to not cross boundaries. And in training and coaching, you know, you want to always do some refresh, recap, practice to understand what, what people have been able to apply in between the trainings. Practice, learn, because two hours doesn't get it done. So the reinforcement of real live examples and experiences is what continuous learning is all about. So when we come back for our final segment, I will cover more about how to set better expectations related to setting boundaries. So for Mark Altman, this is I Communicate. I'll be right back. 
Now, I Communicate continues on Full Service Radio, 830 WCRN. Once again, here's your host, Mark Altman. Okay, welcome to our final segment of I Communicate. I'm your host, Mark Altman, founder and trainer for Mindset Go, as well as executive coach and motivational speaker. So we're going to end this last segment today with an acronym that I want you to take away today that is huge when setting expectations. And, you know, when it comes to setting boundaries, right, there's a, there's a, there's a reciprocal win that can take place here. And I think leaders miss this. You know, your team wants boundaries too. Because as a leader, when you need or want something from your team and you want to talk to them, you may just call them up, email them, text them, Slack, Teams, whatever. And guess what? When you reach out to them, they may be busy. They may be focused on something. But because you're their boss and you're their leader, they realize they have to respond and be on call. So sometimes when we think about, at the beginning of the show, I talked about, you know, why people don't set boundaries, right? They want to be a team player. They want to be visible for their own team. They don't want them to think that they're not available for them. So there's an assertiveness challenge there, which is, how can I have my cake and eat too? How can I set clear boundaries to have better focus time, strategy time, increased productivity, less stress with all the distractions and interruptions, and also feel like I'm supporting my team? Because you can do both. And I think what a lot of leaders are pleasantly surprised when I coach them on this is, what will happen is that after you set those boundaries, the extension of that conversation is, now I'd like to know what your boundaries are. You know, what, what would you like me to consider when I'm reaching out to you? You know, and I often talk about an escalation policy of leaders saying urgent issues, semi-urgent issues, and non-urgent issues. So maybe as the leader, you can pay it forward and create a mutual behavior. So unless you have an urgent behavior, you communicate a certain way with the team to prevent them from getting distracted and stressed and not feeling productive and feeling obligated to respond. So I just needed to say that because there's a tremendous amount of value, right, in creating mutual norms, meeting norms, communication norms, boundary norms. Like it should go both ways. Like I said before, it's not just the leader gets to do this. Everybody on the team collaboratively in the culture should have rules of engagement. And they shouldn't be one way or one-sided. So if you're a leader and you're like, I don't know, I do want to set boundaries. I do want to protect my time of focus and concentration and strategy, but I don't want my team to, to feel like I'm not available for them. You can do both. But it comes down to setting clear expectations and setting clear boundaries. Now, when you're having conversations with people, and this is the final thing I'm going to talk about today, there's something I call A prep, right? A prep, just like the, like the grade A, letter A with the word prep. And A prep is this. When you're having a conversation with someone, the first thing you need to do is get alignment on the problem. Because if you share your assessment or even an assertion in the beginning of the conversation and the person doesn't see it the same way you see it, the conversation takes a very different turn. So in the beginning of the conversation, share your observation, share your my, 
you know, your my sentence and see if they're on the same page as you. Because if it isn't, the conversation goes differently. The P in prep, and the first P in prep, is about checking your assumptions and prejudgments at the door. So the P is for prejudge. So catch yourself prejudging. Catch yourself confusing making an assessment and assertion. Catch yourself defaulting to a negative intent in assuming and thinking you know why the person is doing what they're doing. Is the person crossing boundaries because they want you to look like you're not a good leader and haven't taught them the right values of professionalism? Or are they doing it because they didn't even have the awareness to know what crossing boundaries is? Or their value system is different than yours? So the P, don't prejudge. Like, be curious. The R is the root cause. The R is get to the root cause of the problem. So the opposite of prejudging is being curious to understand why they're acting and behaving the way they do. Again, it's not to make your life miserable. It's because there is some kind of deficiency or gap in confidence, motivation, knowledge, skill, awareness, you name it. But you need to identify the root cause of the real problem. The E in A prep is excuses and reactions. No, when you're having a habit change or performance improvement conversation, people may make excuses. People may deflect. People may say they're busy, and that's why. So the reason why the E excuses in A prep is because if you're triggered or you're easily uh, upset by excuses and how this person reacts, you need to manage your emotions in those situations. So if you know you're going to get excuses, think about that beforehand. If I get this response, how will I respond to this response? So you're not surprised, especially if there's a pattern or track record around that behavior. The P, the second P in A prep is the perceived problem versus the real problem. And I spoke to that earlier in the show. Make sure you've identified not what peripherally seems to be wrong, but what really is wrong. If you think someone in sales is not making calls and they tell you it's because they don't have time, that is the perceived problem. The real problem may be they don't feel like they need to make more calls because they're hitting quota. They may not be motivated to make more calls because they're making enough money and they don't feel like they have to. It may be that they would make calls, but they're not feeling really confident in their approach to make calls. Or it could be because they've been rejected a lot and they're feeling down and they're doing avoidance. So if someone says, I'm not making calls because I'm busy, it's unlikely because they're busy and it's more likely one of the items I just mentioned or even something different than that. That's what I mean by perceived problem and real problem. Most people haven't given enough thought or self-reflection to what's really bothering them. If you work at a company and you say, I don't like my boss, that's a perceived problem. The real problem is, what are the behaviors your boss is modeling and communicating that are making you not like him? That's the real, pros, pro, uh, real problem. If you say, I think I'm going to quit because I don't like the company I work for, well, that's the perceived problem that you don't like the company you work for. But what are the things happening at that company that make you uncomfortable, disengaged, unmotivated? That's the real problem. 
This is important vocabulary to develop as parents, as leaders, as coaches, as professionals, peers, you know. It's important we ask questions and really delve into what's really going on because you can't fix something if you're fixing the wrong thing. A prep, alignment, prejudge, don't do it, get to the root cause, ask questions and listen to understand, be ready for excuses and how you'll respond to them, get to the real problem as opposed to the P, the perceived problem. So, the whole thing about boundaries are, it's got like a negative association. Well, you don't have boundaries, or you haven't set boundaries. It feels very, like, punitive. It feels like you're not doing something you should. Boundaries are a good thing. Boundaries are invaluable for your peace of mind, your ability to feel productive, your ability to be strategic and think and recognize opportunities for growth for yourself, for your team, for the company. Protect your time. You have choices. There are certain things that you have to do every day as part of your job. I get that. And then you make choices in how you spend your time. And part of those choices have to do with things you don't love to do or you aren't motivated to do, or you don't find any value in them, or you don't think they'll matter if you do them. You have choices. Life is short. Every day you make a choice how you spend your time personally and professionally. I see parents all the time confuse quantity time with quality time. Kids don't have a scorecard. Kids are not sitting there saying, I expected to spend five nights with my mom and dad this week, and I only spent two. I'm upset. That's not what they do. Kids want you to have quality time, and you know what they really want? They want you to be present. They want you when you are with them. They want you to be attentive, loving, supportive, good listeners, problem solvers. That's what they want. There is no quantity scorecard. And, the, and, you know, I learned this a long time ago. You know, the guilt we put on ourselves as leaders, we're not spending enough time with our teams. As parents, we're not spending enough time with our kids. How about instead of criticizing ourselves for not, we be intentional and we identify what we want the time that we do spend to look like and how we're going to provide value professionally to the people on our team and how we want to be seen and heard and why don't we just ask our kids what they want and what they need instead of having this invisible template that we create to say, well, we better spend this amount of time or they're going to be upset or we're going to feel guilty. Let's ask them. Kids can tell you what they want and need. And when you ask them, it doesn't mean you're obligated to do what they want and need. It means you can listen and you can set expectations and you can be present and do the best you can. But at least it opens up the door for clarification and clarity. I'm Mark Altman, and we'll look forward to seeing you next time. You've been listening to I Communicate with your host, Mark Altman. Join us again each week at this time on Full Service Radio, WCRN.